First Thessalonians chapter 4, Sin and Judgment. The chapter encompasses two main sections, that is verses 1 to 12 and then 13 to 18. 1 to 12, an exhortation to godliness, and then 13 to 18, expecting the return of Christ. Verse 1, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren, who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen. The apostle, he turns to an exhortation here, an exhortation to sanctification or holiness. He mentions sanctification such as in verses 3 and 7. Sanctification is a synonym for holiness or godliness. This is what the Christian life is all about. If we have truly understood the first coming of Christ, we are preparing for the second coming of Christ. If we're not preparing for the second coming of Christ, then we have not understood the reason for the first coming of Christ. The two comings are bound together, and we have to prepare ourselves between the two. 
understand why he came in the first place, to die and rise again for our sins, that we should no longer live for our sins, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And that is the kind of life we should be living between the first and the second comings. In the second coming of Christ, we expect him to completely renovate us or completely renew us so that we are completely, both in soul and body, 100% with the Lord in a glorified form forever. Now we have mortality and we have immorality, but then we will have immortality and complete morality. That is, be perfect, sinless, glorified. If we understand these two comings, then we know that right now is the time between, the intermediate period between the first and the second comings. So what does God expect of us? Is it a carefree life? Is it to live as we please? Is it to do our own will? Is it to go to the boundaries of what is permissible and what's not permissible in the Christian life? Is it to live a life loving money, loving pleasure, seeking our own fame and fortune and fun? Is that the way the Christian life should be now? No. The Apostle makes it absolutely clear here in our passage that that is not the case whatsoever. He says in verse 1, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. It's a request, but it's also an exhortation. A request to plead with, to beg, but also an exhortation. An exhortation includes both encouragement and admonishment. From Hebrews 13, where he says, Hebrews 13 and verse 22, he calls his letter a word of exhortation in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 22. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. In the book of Hebrews, in certain places there's encouragement, and in other places there is admonishment or warnings if we don't follow the will of God. And that is the same as the apostle is teaching here. This is an exhortation. And why? We'll find out in verse 6. Because the Lord is the avenger. He is the avenger. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, and he will take vengeance on all of his adversaries, and even and especially the pretentious brothers, the pretentious, the fake brethren, the false brethren. He will do so. That's why an exhortation is presented. Also, notice he mentions in verse 1 that this is instruction. Instruction from the apostles. And then in verse 2, he calls it commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. The apostolic instruction, the apostolic doctrine is the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not their invention. It's not their religion. It's the religion or the faith 
It's the doctrine, it's the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle knows he's preaching Christ. He's preaching the will of Christ. He knows it. And even the Thessalonians know it. You know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. We cannot dismiss the apostle, the apostle Paul, as heretics have constantly done in his day and even in our day and throughout history. They have undermined, they have minimized, they have jettisoned the doctrine of the Apostle Paul as though he has some unique and crazy and weird, excessive, legalistic doctrine. But it's not the case at all. He is preaching knowingly the doctrine of Christ. And the Thessalonians, the immediate recipients, both in word and in print, understood it. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, 2.13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Also in 4.15, in explaining the return of Christ, 4.15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. As well, 5.27, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. He adjures them, he puts them under oath to ensure that they read the Holy Scripture of the Apostle Paul in the church. Read, understand, explain, and obey what he's saying. If the apostle is aware the Thessalonians received it as such, we should as well. We cannot put the Bible into different categories and make Jesus contradict Paul. It's impossible and we should not do so. Nor Peter contradict Paul. No one should contradict Paul because what Paul wrote was of the Holy Spirit, just as Peter, just as John, Matthew, as they record Jesus' words and as well the Old Testament. So, what is it that we ought to be about? He said in verse 1, he says, how you ought to walk and please God. How to walk and please God, or ought to walk and please God. It's an obligation. It's not a choice. It is not up to us. It's not up to our whims whenever we feel like it, but he says, you ought to, how you ought to walk and please God. To walk means to conduct your life, how you live your life. To please God. No longer do we please ourselves, but we please the Lord. We're always seeking, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 5.10 trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. When we are converted, we are not asking, we should not be asking, how far can I go? What what does God allow me to do and not allow me to do? Whenever we're asking those kinds of questions, we are hedging and we're balking at the thought that we have to do the will of God. 
Our flesh doesn't want to do the will of God. That's the way we used to live. But now, we don't ask that. We just say, what does God say? What does God expect? And that's how we should be thinking. Also, after a conversion, it's not enough for us to change a little bit here and a little bit there. Many people think that the Gospel and the Bible gives us that ability to be content in a little bit of growth. The Apostle says, he commends them for how they are walking with God, pleasing God, but he says that you may excel still more. It's necessary to excel still more. A similar phrase in verse 10, to excel still more. It's necessary to be excelling in the things of God. We cannot be stagnant. We cannot go backward. We cannot fall away. We cannot be wobbly. We cannot be tossed here and there by waves and winds of doctrine and the trickery of men, Ephesians 4.14. That should not happen, but we need to excel, press on, be serious, be diligent, be steadfast in producing the fruit of the Spirit. By this, all men will know that you are my, my disciples if you love one another. By this is my Father glorified if you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We must bear much fruit and we must love one another. John 15 8 and John 15, uh, 13, 34, and 35. Loving one another and bearing much fruit. Those are necessary. That's the way we excel. He simplifies it in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your will of the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is? People wonder. People scratch their hair, uh, their head, pull out their hair, and they are scrambling here and there, trying to figure out what does God want? What's God's will? What's God? What God's will? How can I know God's will? Here he says God's will. It's easy to know. It's not very difficult at all. In fact, in verse three he says God's will is your sanctification. That means whatever is going to promote my sanctification, according to Scripture, that is the will of God. He also says in verse 9, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You should already know this. The moment you heard the gospel, the moment your heart was changed, the moment you believed that Jesus died and rose again, you should have known at that very moment that sanctification was now your lifelong pursuit. To do the will of God is our sanctification. Then he specifies a kind of sanctification in one area, one major area. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is the usual term for sexual immorality in the New Testament. And... Often it's translated immorality, but in this case, sexual immorality. It's quite clear that's what he means as he's 
mentioning the transgression or the sin in verses 4 to 6. We're supposed to abstain, abstinence, abstain, abstinence. That is, before marriage, there should be no sexual immorality. There should be no sex before marriage. Sometimes the Bible calls that fornication. Whatever we want to call it, it's a sin before marriage. Then, other kinds of sexual immorality that occur. There's pornography, but in Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 27 to 30, Jesus says that if a man looks on a woman to lust for her, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, pornography and even daily temptations to look on others, aside from husband and wife, that is a constant temptation to sexual immorality. Also, when one is married, and that is what his attention is right here in verses 4 to 6, he's talking about adultery. Without using the word, he doesn't always have to use the word. God doesn't, does not always use the word. But he's describing it clearly here. It's adultery. What is adultery? When the man or the woman is married and has sex with another, that is adultery. When one is married and has sex with another, that is adultery. And of course, other sexual sins, adults with children or adults, uh, man with man, woman with woman, woman with animal, man with animal, woman with tree, all kinds of bizarre and devious actions have taken place. Those should not happen. He says we should abstain. This means that there can be no Christianity or no godly Christianity with coupling sexual immorality and Christianity. We cannot be Christian adulterers, Christian fornicators, Christian anything else in terms of sexual sins, Christian pornographers. There cannot be that at all. It's impossible. He says so. Abstain from sexual immorality. It should have no part of who we are. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 to 11. 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor uh, neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals nor thieves nor the covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Verse, verses 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. 
Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says, the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4. He says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Possessing our own vessel means our own body. Your Bible may have a footnote in making an alternative interpretation, the body or the wife, but actually it's most likely he's talking about one's own body being a vessel. It is the case in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that he calls our bodies earthenware vessels. And in our context, he says, possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, because we can control or curb our own sins, right? But not the sins of others. Don't be like the Gentiles who do not know God. Also, 1 Samuel 21 1 Samuel 21 and verse 5. 1 Samuel 21, 5. David and his men, his military men, are fugitives here running from Saul. And they need to eat. And the priest asks David the following. 21.5, and David's answer. And we'll actually read from verse 4, 4 and 5. And the priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread, if only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously, when I set out and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey, how much more than today will their vessels be holy? The priest's concern is that their bodies are holy, keeping themselves from women. And David assures the priest that that is exactly the case. It was that way before the vessels of the young men were holy. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? It is likely that an allusion is being made to that passage. So if that is the case, 
Our bodies should be in sanctification and in honor. We ought to treat our bodies in an honorable way. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We're supposed to glorify God in our body. 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20 just taught us the same. The contrary to honor and sanctification is lustful passion. Lustful passion. Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. That is the kind of lustful passion he's preaching against. Because when that lustful passion is not repented of, when it is not controlled, when it is not beaten down, it leads to actual adultery. Adultery of the heart and then actual adultery. We are not characterized anymore by lustful passion. That's not the way of the Christian life. Ephesians 4, 17. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. In the local church, this should not be happening whatsoever. Because he warns us, 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. He says, no one should defraud his brother. And by brother, most likely he means brother in the church. That when adultery is happening in the church, that that is a transgression, it's a sin, it's lustful passion, it is sexual immorality, it is contrary to our sanctification. Also, here is an aspect of the Jesus men hate. This is the Jesus people hate. It says, the Lord is the avenger in all these things. The Lord. In the Apostle Paul's writing, writings especially, the Lord means the Lord Jesus. Sometimes he says Jesus, sometimes he says the Lord Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ, but some, simply the Lord. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the avenger. He will take out vengeance against his adversaries. He will mete it out. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says so. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. 1, 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. If we have properly understood the gospel, that gospel proclamation should have been accompanied, a true gospel proclamation should have been accompanied with a solemn warning. 
That's what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. Solemn warning. Solemnly warned you. Solemnly warned. This is serious business. This is a warning, which means it's a threat, which means God is the avenger. The Lord Jesus is the specific, particular person who's going to carry out vengeance when he returns on the day of judgment, which means he is trying to instill the fear of God in us. In verse 6, the fear of God. If we have the fear of God, then we will understand that we shall all stand, all be presented before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must understand this to prepare for His return. Preparing for His return is not only seeing Him in glory and being glorified with Him. That is a wonderful part of it. But also, there is judgment. When He returns, there will be judgment taking place for the elect and for the reprobate, for the believers and for the unbelievers, for the righteous and the wicked. Didn't he say, Matthew 24, 31, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your master? Well, that's assuming, it's explaining a judgment for the elect. And the same with the reprobate. He will send them away into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25:41. Earlier I said 24:31, it should be 25:31 and 25:41. Verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Now the apostle goes back farther in time. Now the apostle goes back to God's ultimate, initial, and final purpose for us. This calling is not the general call. This call is not the outward call. It's not the call of the preached word, though it includes it. This is the secret call, the mysterious internal call the call of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who calls us for the purpose of sanctification. Not impurity, but sanctification. He is the one who calls us, and He's the one that will bring it to pass. 524, Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So what he did from the beginning in us, he's going to accomplish in us finally, definitively, without any doubt. What will he accomplish? Our sanctification. Verse 8. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Again, remember, we read in 1 Corinthians 6. 6.11 said, We've been washed 
in the Spirit, right? 1 Corinthians 6 also said that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, and the conclusion, therefore glorify God in your body. Romans 8, Romans 8, 12. Romans 8 and verse 12 says, 12 to 14. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We must be, by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. We who are led by the Spirit we show forth that we are sons of God. Verse Also back up to verse 9, 8-9. However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. What is the typical, the common adjective Attached to the Spirit? The Holy Spirit. Yes, He is the Good Spirit, but more often He is the Holy Spirit. Sometimes Spirit of God, but Holy Spirit. Why would the Holy Spirit dwell in us if He's not producing any holiness? How could the Holy Spirit dwell in us and tolerate our unholiness? None of this makes sense. If we heard the gospel truly the first time, we know that the Holy Spirit dwells in us to produce holiness in us. Is this man's doctrine? Is this a tradition of men? Is this legalism? Is this pharisaicalism? Is this a tradition of the elders? No. He's already told us in 4.2. He tells us again in 4.8. You're not rejecting man. You're rejecting the Holy Spirit. 4.15, it's the word of the Lord. 5.27, it is inspired, an inspired letter given by the Lord Jesus to the Apostle Paul. Galatians 1.11 Galatians 1:11 to 17 For I would have you know brethren that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through the grace, through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, 
nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. If we reject this doctrine of sanctification, we are rejecting God Himself, Jesus Christ Himself, and the Holy Spirit. That's how solemn of a warning He's giving here. 9 to 12. All of this should be obvious from the moment of our conversion. We say we need encouragement, fellowship, hearing the Word of God, speaking the Word of God to each other, and that's all true. We need prayers. It's all true. But sometimes excuse makers, they try to justify that they don't know this or that by saying, well, nobody ever taught me. How am I supposed to know that? But the fundamentals, the essentials of what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be converted, is embedded at the time of our conversion. How do we know that? He tells us in verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. What's he mean there? He says, there's no need to write it in this sense. You should already know it because you are taught by God to love one another. To love one another is the way to know if we love God and we understand the gospel. John 13, 34 to 35. 1 John 4, 19 to 21. This is the way to know. Romans 13, 8 to 10. The commandment to love one another. But how do we know we're supposed to love one another? Is it something that somebody needs to tell us? He may tell us, he may remind us, he may confront us, rebuke us for it, and we might have to repent. But already, we would have been, should have been taught by God to love one another. And by that he means mysteriously, secretly, internally, miraculously, by the Holy Spirit. That's what he means by that. At the time of our conversion, we should know we are supposed to love one another and then seek to find out how, to master it, to practice it. Now, being taught by God, he is using a phrase that is from the Old Testament. Uh, The first example we find is in Isaiah 54, Isaiah 54, verse 13, 54, 13. And all your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. All your sons will be taught of the Lord. 
Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. John six forty five. John six forty five. Here our Lord He joins Isaiah fifty four thirteen and Jeremiah thirty one thirty four. He takes a word or a couple of words from each of the prophets and puts them together right here. 645. It is written in the prophets, plural, prophets. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. They shall all be taught of God. That's the quotation to prove that Jesus' doctrine is consistent with Isaiah and Jeremiah. But now the interpretation. What does it mean to be taught of God? Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And how is it that that happens? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. John 3, 6 and 3.8, and John 6.63. It is the Holy Spirit, specifically, who is doing this miraculous work in us, sent by the Father and the Son to teach us the true doctrine. To love God and show it by loving one another. Then a commendation and exhortation, verses 10 to 12. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Yes, they do practice it, and that is good. But we should never be content. We should be striving. We should be improving. We should be excelling still more. This is the desire of the true tender heart created by the Holy Spirit to constantly desire to excel still more. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. That perfection will come one day. It'll come when we see the Lord. But meantime, that should be our desire, to excel still more. Then 11. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Lead a quiet life 
Attend to your own business. Work with your hands. Just as we commanded you. Necessary to live a quiet, simple Christian life. Minding our own business, doing the will of God, working hard, working with your hands. This is what God expects of us. This means it rules out this selfish ambition for fame, fortune, and fun. Fame, fortune, and fun must be eliminated from the Christian life. And by that, we're talking about fame the way the world pursues it, fortune the way the world pursues it, fun the way the world pursues it. Not that we are unknown. God knows us. Not that we live in poverty. God provides for us. And not that we have no joy or happiness in the Christian life. We have the joy of the Holy Spirit, being content with what we have. Verse 12, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Outsiders, we must understand the testimony that we are portraying. The testimony that we are portraying to others, to outsiders. Colossians 4, 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Matthew 5. Matthew five sixteen. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It does matter how we are toward outsiders, outside of the church. 1 Timothy 3, 7. 1 Timothy 3, 7. The pastor also. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now the return. We've been saying the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ. However, especially in the last 200 years, uh, or 100 to 150 years, there has been a doctrine called dispensationalism, or dispensational premillennialism. It's not the first time elements of it have sprung up throughout the history of the church, but it has become very popularized, especially in worldwide Protestant Christianity, usually in churches that are not Reformed churches or Presbyterian churches. This doctrine is very prevalent in Pentecostalism, in the Charismatic churches, in Baptist churches, Bible churches, various churches in Protestantism, and even some Presbyterian churches. And the favorite passage, the central passage to promote the rapture of the church and the dispensational way of looking at the future is right here. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. This is their central passage. It's not their only passage. They use many and distort many, just as they distort this one. The reason, one reason this is their favorite is in verse 17. Verse 17, it says that we shall be caught up together. To be raptured is to be caught up, taken from a Latin word. And even when we are caught up into something, caught up in a mood, caught up in a, in a song or something like that, poetry, nature, we say so-and-so is enraptured, caught up into, in that frame of mind, in that thinking. But this is talking about a physical being caught up, a physical uh, aspect of meeting the Lord. Come, comes from a Latin word to be caught up. Verse 17 mentions it. Another reason why this passage is a favorite, it says to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. The dispensational interpretation says we meet the Lord in the air, we are with him, and it doesn't say we come to the earth with him. It doesn't say we touch the earth or that Jesus touches the earth. We meet him midair, high in the atmosphere. We meet him there and join him and are always with him from that time on. Another, they say, this passage is not the second coming of Christ, but the rapture. The rapture which takes place before the second coming. So because Jesus does not land on the earth, it's not his return. It's not his second coming. It is the rapture because he doesn't land. However, none of the above is correct. None of the above is true. In fact, verse 15 calls this event the coming of the Lord. There's only two comings, the first coming and the second coming. If this is the rapture, as the dispensational interpretation says, then this is not the second coming. But this is the second coming, according to verse 15, until the coming of the Lord. And this phrase, the coming of the Lord, is used here in First Thessalonians a few times. For example, 2, well, we'll go 1.10. 1.10 says, To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 2.19 For Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Chapter 3, chapter 3 and verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse, verses 1 and 2. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. 
For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord will come. So in 4.15, he's not talking about some separate event called rapture. He's talking about explaining the return of Christ, the coming of the Lord, as he says so in verse 15. The coming of the Lord. This is the second coming. Verse 13. What should we do when the dead in Christ have died? And we witness, we experience the death of our loved ones in Christ. Remember, this is Loved ones in Christ, dead in Christ, fallen asleep in Jesus. That's what he says in this passage. 14, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Verse 16, the dead in Christ shall rise first. He is here presenting hope, and comfort for us when our loved ones in Christ have died. They have died. Their bodies have been buried. Their souls have gone to be with the Lord. In Philippians 1, I long to depart. I desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Philippians 1, 21 to 24. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. Stephen, Acts chapter 7, verse 59, when he was about to breathe his last breath, said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's where the spirit or the inner man goes to be with the Lord. Keeping that in mind, our bodies, if we're dead, are in the grave Our spirits or souls, the inner man, they are with the Lord. If that's the case, what is the sequence of events and how should we look at it for our comfort? Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. It is proper and right to grieve within limits. But we should not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Others are living in a hopeless world. Many of them will openly express their fear of death, uncertainty of the afterlife. But we don't live that way. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus have hope, have had hope. We have hope also. And we have hope that we will meet them. So our life is a different life. It's a hopeful life compared to theirs. This phrase here, who are asleep, verse 15, 14 and 15, fallen asleep. In the Bible, to sleep like this, in these contexts, 
Sleep is a metaphor for death, physical death. And the reason sleep is used as a metaphor, as an illustration, has to do with the fact that assuming, for the sake of the illustration, that when the body dies, it is laid horizontally, just like when we sleep, we sleep horizontally. In our daily sleep, our sleep is temporary. Our bodies are horizontal, and then they rise up. Correct? So, in reference to the day of resurrection and our burial and our death right now, death and burial now, we are laid to rest in our tombs or graves horizontally, and then one day those bodies will rise. So, in the sense of resurrection, we could call it sleeping. In fact, Daniel the prophet calls it that. Daniel 12, 2. Daniel 12, 2 to 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Even Luke, in describing the death of Stephen, calls it sleep. Acts 7, verse 60. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. But does fall asleep in reference to Stephen mean... He died and was buried? Yes. It says in verse chapter 8, chapter 8 and verse 2. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. So those who are asleep now are those Christians, believers in Christ, who have passed away, but they will rise from the dead. That's what he's implying by using this phrase, who are asleep. They will rise from the dead. So now he's going to describe it, this resurrection. Verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 4.14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. If we believe Jesus died and rose again, that's a summation of the gospel, to believe he died and rose again. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Same here, 4.14, we believe Jesus died and rose again. So God, even so God, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. How could they come, accompany Christ when he returns? Well, their spirits will. Their spirits will accompany Jesus when he returns. But that's not the end of it. This is a passage teaching resurrection, and we will see that in a moment. But their spirits will accompany Jesus when Jesus returns. 
Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. We shall not, if we are alive, precede those who have fallen asleep. What does he mean, not precede those who have fallen asleep? They are accompanying him when he comes in the clouds. We are on the earth, alive. So precede in what sense? Precede in transformation. Precede in resurrection. Because it will happen like this. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Verse 14, those will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. These are the same people. The the ones who have died physically are with Jesus in spirit, in their immaterial nature. And when they accompany Jesus upon the return of Christ, their bodies will rise from the dead and be joined with their spirits. Their bodies will rise from the dead, be recomposed, immortally glorified, to join their spirits, and we will see them that way. Verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. He did not say specifically explicitly, what's going to happen to us in our bodies. But this is implied. But he does say specifically in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 53. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. In 1 Corinthians 15, he calls it being changed. He calls it that twice. We shall all be changed. We shall be changed from being perishable to imperishable, from being mortal to immortal, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound. 
like he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, the trumpet will sound and we will be changed and meet the Lord and always be with the Lord from that time onward. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And before we conclude, one brief aside. Another reason why the dispensational interpretation uses this passage, they say that there needs to be a seven-year period between rapture and return, or some period like that, between rapture and return, for the judgment of the raptured people to take place, for the judgment of all the believers and the raptured people to take place. There needs to be time in heaven for Jesus to judge us. They make an argument like that. However, that would put a limitation. And we have to explain it this way to see how absurd that comment is, that there needs to be time. Because if we assume that the time between rapture and second coming is a seven-year period, and we include a leap year, that would mean that there are 220,838,400 seconds. If Jesus were to judge us in one second, he could only judge basically 221 million people. That's the limit on how many believers there could be to that point in history. And that is absurd. Not possible. And Jesus doesn't need one second and he doesn't need 10 seconds. He doesn't need 100 minutes or 100 hours. He doesn't need any of that. Time is not a factor when we're talking about the day of judgment. It's not a factor. They, if they make it a factor, they put themselves in a quandary. It's just logically, biblically absurd to think that the limit on the number of people who could be judged on that day or in that period of seven years is 221 million. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.